Malaria is a disease that still kills 660,000 people every year. On the 24th of April, the day before World Malaria Day, new research led by Professor Brian Greenwood from the school will be published in The Lancet. It reveals the final results from the RTSS malaria vaccine trial, the most advanced vaccine candidate in development globally. Professor Greenwood has worked on this vaccine for 20 years. And these findings will reveal how effective the vaccine will be in helping to protect young children from malaria and may also help the World Health Organization decide whether to make it the first ever malaria vaccine available. We spoke to Professor Greenwood about the vaccine and also about his lengthy career in this field. Well, this is the vaccine developed by first the um, Walter Reed in the United States and then picked up by GlaxoSmithKline. And they've been working on this vaccine for about 20 years now. And it is the sort of first malaria vaccine that is getting near to being licensed for, for use. Tell me a little bit about what the vaccine is. How, how does it work? Well, th- this vaccine is uh, directed against the sporozoite, which is part of the malaria parasite that is injected into the blood uh, when it bites somebody. And it, the sporozoite, a bit like a wriggly worm, goes through the bloodstream and then gets into the liver and it develops in the liver. The person doesn't know that's happening. You don't feel ill at that time. But then after about 10 days, the parasite breaks out from the liver, gets into the blood, gets into the red cells, and that's when people feel ill. So this vaccine is actually probably attacking both the sporozoite before it gets into the liver, but then also it's inducing an antibody response that can kill the parasite before it escapes into the blood. And I guess the key thing with any vaccine, it's given to people before they're ever infected, before they're bitten by a mosquito. Yes, so so this is aimed at stopping people getting infected. Some people are developing vaccines that actually try to damp down the effect of the infection. So it doesn't stop the people getting infected, but they don't get ill with it. And other vaccines are actually trying to stop the ability of the parasite to spread to another person. But this one is directed actually at stopping infection. The problem is that uh, perhaps 20, 30, 50 sporozoites are injected. So it's a bit like Star Wars with the missiles coming in and you've got to get all of them. Um, And even if one survives and gets into the liver and then multiplies and breaks out into the bloodstream, the person may get ill. So it is quite tough. You've got to have a really very effective vaccine to stop everyone, every sporozoite from getting into the liver or killing every parasite whilst it's growing in the liver. Tell me about the results of the trial. That is obviously the big question. How effective is this vaccine? Well, it's really difficult. We're all used to talking about half glasses full and half glasses empty. And I think that's a a good description of what has happened here. I mean, there was a hope at the beginning that it would we would have a malaria vaccine like a measles vaccine that you could give to everybody and you would get complete protection. It's probably a bit naive, really, because the parasite's very clever. It's much more complicated than a, a measles virus. And so <clears throat> what has, we have with this vaccine is it gives partial... And so in the older children, the sort of best results is that over four years, if they had the, boot, the three initial injections and then the booster dose, they get about 35% protection. So I think a useful way of thinking about this is the number of cases prevented by a 1,000 children vaccinated. On average, in the older children, it was about um, just under 2,000 for the four-year period. So you could say that for 1,000 children vaccinated, you say, I think the figure was 1,770 cases of malaria. 
But what was really uh, very interesting is that it depends on what the level of malaria is in that area. And if you're in somewhere where malaria happens, but it's like uh, not a very big problem, like the Gambia or Senegal, which I know, or perhaps parts of southern Africa, where children only perhaps one in ten children get malaria, then you're not going to save a lot of cases with a 30% efficacious vaccine. But, for example, like in Burkina Faso, where I've just been, where there's really high transmission going on, the children may be getting two or three or four attacks a year. In that situation, if you vaccinate a 1,000 children, you might say save two or three or 4,000 cases of malaria. And so I think one of the things that will influence the decision of how you might use this vaccine is how big a problem is malaria in your area. So for a 1,000 children that are vaccinated, there's 1,700 cases yes. potentially prevented. That's more cases than children. How, how does that work? That's over four years. Some children will get cases every year. Um, some will get two or three episodes of malaria in the same year. But I, I think, I mean, this is out on the average across all the, all the sites. Um, that's the number of cases you would pre- prevent. I think it's probably more helpful to do this by country and say if or by level of transmission of malaria and one of the things that's in the paper sets that out there is a figure that starts off at the Kilifi on, on the coast of Kenya where malaria is nearly gone there so if you vaccinated a thousand children there you would save 50 cases of malaria or something at the right at the top is Siaya by Lake Victoria if you vaccinated a thousand cases oh, I can't remember the exact figure I think it's something like 3,000 or 4,000 Um, cases of malaria. So that should be helpful in people making the decision where you would use that vaccine. So ultimately this could save a lot of lives. It can. I mean we have to remember remember that there's still half, you know, a lot of progress has been made in the last 10 years but we mustn't forget that there's still half a million people dying from malaria every year and most of those are children in in Africa. And that's in spite of all our, all the work that's gone into getting better treatments, ACTs, bed nets really are quite widely distributed now with pretty good coverage in most areas, some spraying and things, and still uh, you're getting half a million deaths a year. What next for the vaccine? So we've had the results of this trial, what would be your hopes for the future? Well I think two things happen. I mean we ha- have to, I've been telling you about the good things, there are obviously there are costs I mean, the vaccine's going, we don't know exactly what, what it will cost. And there have been some side effects as well, so that has to come into the equation. And some children get a fever afterwards, um, and uh, even some of those children get com- febrile convulsions. If they get a high fever, they have a convulsion. But it's, nothing serious has come from that. From that. I mean, they've all recovered from, from those convulsions, which is quite common after vaccines. Um, but there is an increased incidence of meningitis, which is surprising nobody can explain it (laughs) it doesn't seem to make biological sense but that's something that has to be watched so I think we we know what the benefit is now so you can go to your uh, minister of health and say well if you do this in your area this is what will happen this is the amount of malaria you'll you'll save this is the best way of giving the vaccine but there are cost implications that obviously uh, there are some safety issues that still have to be followed and it then becomes a question of making the balance financial perhaps some side effects against the good which you will achieve and that's going to be a tricky decision and I think as I mentioned uh, I think that will be influenced a lot with how big a problem malaria still is 
in your area. So this vaccine might be attractive for people in very high transmission areas, not so something people would want to do if malaria is pretty under control with the tools that they've got. And so two things need to happen for helping in that decision. One is the vaccine is being considered by the European Medicines Authority because it has to get licensed or uh, approved. And they, they will be very strict on is it safe, um, is the data really accurate, have the investigators done all the right things. And I, some deci a decision on that is expected probably towards the end of this year or perhaps even a bit earlier than that. And then at the same time, WHO has set up a committee to review all the data as it comes along, and then there will be again a meeting after the EMA have decided. If they say, yes, this vaccine's licensed, so that means it can be used, that WHO committee will advi provide advice to the countries where malaria is endemic as how they might use the vaccine and in what situations that would be a good thing, thing to do. We hope that this decision will be made on scientific grounds, proper grounds, not on because the company is pushing the vaccine commercially or something like that. It is a, a, a genuinely well-balanced, well-thought-through decision. And then, of course, it's up to each country to do what they want. They don't have to follow what WHO says. But I think they will find, and it's going to be a difficult decision, they will find it helpful to have a WHO recommendation. You mentioned that there are financial considerations for the companies. There is maybe a perception that companies aren't interested in developing treatments mm. for, for infectious diseases in Africa. But this is obviously a vaccine that has gone all the way through long-term, large-scale trials. Mm. I, I mean, we don't know exactly how much <laughs> this is cost. It's rumoured that the, even this trial cost $200 million. Um, it probably did something in that, that area. And the company has made major investments. Um, a lot of money has come from the Bill and Belinda Gates Foundation, and probably the company would not have done this without that outside support. But they have put a, a major investment on on their own into doing this and they're not going to make a profit out of this and I think they have said that they will sell the vaccine at more or less cost price and not out to make this as a profit because it's not a vaccine that's going to be used by wealthy people going on holiday it's not good enough for that I mean that they will still keep on taking their their drugs and so it really is a market just for poorer countries where malaria is endemic um, and I think you know they deserve credit for that how does it feel to have been involved in the development of this vaccine right from the start? You were right in at the yeah, early stage yeah. trials. I mean, it is, it's been a long journey. I think it's a sort of mixture of pride, I suppose, that it's got as far as it has, and slight disappointment that the results aren't, aren't better. It would have been great. Um, I've been involved in the development of the meningitis vaccine. It's just, well, that was a wonder. It's just, that's much easier disease to deal with. You get 90% protection, one dope, one shot. That's really great. Everybody realised from the beginning that malaria would be much more, much more difficult. Um, and I think, you know, it is a credit to the, to the donors, the companies, thing that they've stuck with it for the, the first trial we did in the Gambia, I was just looking this morning, it was in 1998, so that's uh, 17 years, you know, and they've kept with it and through to the end to do that. And uh, when initial results weren't absolutely dramatic, they could possibly have, have given up with that. So th this, this is not going to be the ultimate malaria vaccine. There would be better malaria vaccines, but it would be a, 
a definite step forward, and I hope that will happen, that it gets licensed, that it gets used in the right situations, um, that we learn that it's safe, whilst people are, are developing better vaccines. And to take a step back in a broader picture, mm. what first got you interested in medicine in, in this part yeah. of the world? Why did I first go to work in Africa? Uh, I suppose partly excitement, doing something different. Um, and if I'm honest, I guess some altruism as well, that younger people wanted to do something. It was just sort of after the time that African countries were becoming independent. Um, and I, I didn't, I imagined originally it would be for a year or two. I didn't realise it was a, a lifetime commitment. But I think for people who get to know Africa, it gets to you. Um, you know, and I've always wanted to go back and work there. What sort of things have you done? Tell me a little bit about the journey you've taken from mm. over those fifty years. Well, it's an interesting, it's an interesting story because when I started, I well, did my house jobs and things in London, London Teaching Hospital, and it was pretty unusual then for people to go and work in Africa. Most people then would have gone to the States. Their BTA was there, been to America. My BTA was been. To, to Africa. So I did two years in Nigeria and then the Civil War, the Biafra War happened, I was there for part of that. That was working in a big teaching hospital. Then I came back to learn some immunology because I realised that, that as time went on, if you were going to help that, you needed to have specialist skills, not just being a, a general doctor. So I spent three years back here learning some immunology. And then in 1970, I was torn, I was offered a job in Canada. <laughs> good job there or could I go back to Nigeria to help start because the war was over by then start a new medical school from scratch which um, which was led by Professor Parry who's been long connections with the school school here and uh, so I went back and we started a new medical school in a district hospital that was, was Nigeria was in pretty bad shape then after the war and that was very rewarding and I spent 10 years there how I got into malaria is an interesting story because when in my first two years I was working on, on as I was doing immunology on autoimmune diseases and joint diseases and it was strange because there weren't any there in Nigeria and this was a good you know, university college hospital, Abaddon was a well equipped hospital, teaching hospital as good as any of the ones in London at that time <clears throat> and you might have expected to see that. And we know that um, autoimmune diseases are very common in uh, the West Indies and in Americans of African des descent. It's even more common than in, in Caucasians. So it couldn't be a ge genetic thing. It had to be something in the environment. So I thought, well, could this be malaria that was having a protective effect? So when I came back to do my immunology training, we did some experiments in uh, mice and things. It showed that that was true. If you gave the baby mice malaria, it stopped them getting their autoimmune diseases. Kind of swings and roundabouts there, isn't it? And then, so, I, so I changed that. The job I was offered in Canada was as a rheumatologist, immunologist, and that's so I changed the focus from working on the sort of immunology onto malaria. And then when we were in, uh, in Soria, in, um, in northern Nigeria, I mean, the, the weather there is very seasonal um, across the whole of the Sahel and the sub-Sahel. And uh, the malaria all happens in the rainy season. And the big problem in the dry season are these big epidemics of meningitis. So that's how I, it seems a bit illogical, but we were actually trying to use our lab and things the best. So in the malaria, rainy season, we worked on malaria, and then the dry season on, on meningitis.
And for you, seeing how things have changed in Africa mm. in terms of the public health and particularly the recent Ebola outbreak, I mean, what are your hopes for the, the state of, of public health in, in the well, continent? Like lots of people, I've got dragged into the Ebola <laughs> area as well, so I'm helping to set up a uh, Ebola vaccine trial in Sierra Leone. I, I think it's been a bit unfair, actually, um, that the way people have been critical of the health system in in Africa, I mean, the coverage with bed nets in um, Sierra Leone was seventy percent. Their vaccination coverage was reasonably good. I mean, definitely there were deficiencies there, and so it wasn't. I think it's a bit unfair. You know, I think I think the NHS would have had a problems in London with a massive epidemic of flu on that that scale. It was it's just sort of overwhelming, really. And so I've just come back from Mali and Burkina, and. As you may know, Mali got some cases there, and they did a wonderful job in containing it and seeing how they'd set up all along the border with Guinea um, treatment screening centres to do that and so on and things. So, I mean, they responded really well. And, uh, I mean, there was some outside help, but this was driven by the, by the Malians. So, I mean, I, th I think it, is, it has been a bit unfair to <laughs> say it was the health system failing. You've worked in Africa for mm. 50 years. You've mm. seen firsthand the effect of uh, vaccine-preventable diseases. Yeah. And we're actually seeing in countries like the US and in some parts of Europe the return of vaccine-preventable mm. diseases yeah. because people yeah. are choosing yeah. not to vaccinate. Yeah. What's your opinion on that? Well, I think it is an interesting thing. So I think those people are very selfish, really, who are not doing that. And usually they're protected by everybody else who does have their child vaccine. And I think all vaccines have some these side effects and sometimes a bit of a, a risk so it, it really does it's a an example of a sort of altruistic effect you are protecting your child but you're also protecting somebody else um, and occasionally there may be genuine conditions when somebody can't be vaccinated it's sort of just as lifestyle choice not to have your child vaccinated is very selfish um, because then you open up the chance of the virus, the measles or whatever it is, getting back, getting established and then spreading and affecting other other people. And there's a lot of misinformation on this and it can have very devastating effects. And I can give you an example from the recent one for the meningitis epidemic. I mean, this vaccine is fantastically safe, it's 90% effective, doesn't give you much side effects. But in Chad there was a journalists, there was the vaccination campaign was going on um, and some children in the school fainted during the vaccine campaign, which happens, that's a well-known, if one child, girl, teenage girl faints, there was a big investigation, she made a big fuss about it, got it in the main outside international press, WHO had to send a group to, to sort this out, then they, I mean, they were honest, they did, some of these children did faint after being, it was probably the needle doing that, but there was no indication that the vaccine was doing any harm and the sort of thing settled down. But then if you look at the coverage with that vaccine in uh, in Chad, in that district where that happened, it's sort of 80% or 70% or something, whilst in the rest of Chad it's nearly 100%. So some people are unprotected now because of that that episode, it is, you know, we have to have a free, have to have people have their right to say say things. But I think people who spread the rumours like that are sort of unsubstantiated and so on. Things. There isn't any comeback of you doing that. Plus, uh, and clearly we have to have, 
watchdogs, because there might be a vaccine that's really genuinely dangerous, should be stopped and, and shouldn't go forward, and you have to have people find it, finding that out. But if it's sort of not based on good, solid science, then it can be very damaging.